On this episode of the Cinema Syndicate Podcast, we're happy to be joined by our special guest and good friend, Mr. Skeeter Loomis. We give our marquee picks for our favorite masks in movies and television, and then we review the 1996 Wes Craven classic, Scream. And to wrap it up, we give our ratings for the movie, and then we have some fun on the wheel. So keep listening. Let's go. Welcome to the Cinema Syndicate Podcast, the movie review show that's spreading its hot takes all over the United States from West Coast to East Coast. As always, I'm Matthew Scott, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Preston Pokey Barnes on the West Coast. How are you doing, Preston? Right on, fellas. Doing well. And moving from West to East, we are joined by Mr. Joe Ray Fine in New Orleans. How are you doing, Joe? Bonsoir, gentlemen. And we've got Mr. Budge Husky representing the East Coast in Washington, D.C. How you doing, Budge? Good evening, laddies. How are y'all? <laughs> I am tonight. Oh, excuse me, Budge. I didn't know you were going to expand on the doing well. So, and tonight we are joined by our special guest, our horror expert, our slasher film connoisseur, Mr. Skeet Loomis. How you doing, Skeet? You ready to talk about your film, Scream, tonight? I'm doing great, guys. Appreciate y'all having me. Big fan of the show. Thank y'all for giving a horror nerd a platform to uh, talk about some nerdy horror movie things. I'm just happy yeah, well, to have a uh, fellow horror person here. I feel like um, the odd man out enjoying horror films. Well, I mean, we're always happy to give nerds a voice. That's basically the number one premise of this show is to give nerds a voice and a platform. So um, as always, before we get going into the movie, like Skeet mentioned, we're going to talk about the Wes Craven classic Scream tonight. But before we do that, we'd like to always ask you, almost beg you, get on our knees and tell you, please, 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 please go to Apple, go to iTunes, rate our show five stars if you enjoy the show. It helps us out so much. Um, and before we get into Scream, we're going to do our marquee picks. And tonight, since we're doing horror movies, and maybe since there's a little bit of a mask, no mask controversy in the United States, we're going to do our favorite masks and disguises in movies and TV shows doesn't have to be horror movies. It can just be favorite masks. We're going to get creative with it. Skeet, we're going to let you go first. What are your favorite masks? All right. So I originally had three horror masks on this list as, as my picks, but I didn't want to be the creepy guy who's only capable of talking about horror. So <laughs> I, I made a last second audible on my number three pick. And uh, so my number three is a nod to a movie that was actually previously discussed on this show. And that's Mrs. Doubtfire's cake icing Ooh. when the lady from social services comes by for her visit. Why? Uh, I love that. Love it. Dude, it's definitely some, getting creative. Definitely getting creative and funny. <laughs> you get some vintage Robin Williams as he's making the tea for the lady. And okay, so my number two pick, uh, I went back to uh to horror, uh, and I'm gonna go with Dr. Hannibal Lecter's mask in Silence of the Lambs. Ah. First, <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to be on some other ones. So, 
first, the reason that he has to wear the mask in the first place is obviously because he's a cannibal who has to be stopped from attacking people with his teeth. And that in and of itself is why the mask is terrifying. But also the simplistic crudeness of the mask itself is, I think, so petrifying because it gives him this sort of constant menacing evil grin with really just his eyes as the only visible part of his face. And that scene when the police unload him in the upright gurney in a straight jacket with that mask on, I think is just horrifying. So great. I love that. Pick. Absolutely. Go to number three. <laughs> we go. Number one. Number yeah. one. Excuse me. Number one. I'm sorry. Yeah. My number one pick, um, which I'm sure is on some other people's list. I'm going with Michael Myers as my number one. Uh, the white expressionless Captain Kirk mask that for pretty much all the entire series keeps his eyes blacked out is the perfect face for Michael Myers, who's just pure sociopathic evil, who has no remorse for anything he does. And everything he does is just emotionless and sort of businesslike. So I think the mask is is very fitting for that. And the whiteness of the mask kind of makes it pop out of the darkness in a lot of different scenes where it's the only thing you can see sometimes. And to me, that kind of makes it extra terrifying. If I'm not, if I'm not making up anything, sorry, Bucks, but if I'm not making up anything, uh, Skeet, did you not dress up a couple of times as Mike Myers for Halloween a few times? Am I making that up or is that, Oh, he's got it on display. We're not putting this on YouTube guys, but he's got it literally on display. It is his favorite mask because he keeps it framed in his house we took it out of the frame just to show us tonight uh anyone else want to talk about mike myers i'm sorry for interrupting because i just remember skeet did that well as the um resident trekkie on the pod i do think it was interesting <laughs> you said that he was very businesslike and sort of antithesis to captain kirk is that because you thought captain kirk was a particularly emotional captain of the enterprise no or like wait i'll sorry I'm just gonna. Isn't it based? The, the mask. Butch, are you are you saying Mike Myers should have had a Luke Picard like <laughs> no, mask? Is that what I you're saying? That was an interesting point. That like in you know what, what was your you, you saying he's very businesslike and precision and his like horror. But he's saying that like William Shatner was particularly like rash and emotional because that kind of how he was as a captain. Okay, we're getting we're getting we're trying to have like two lawyers going back to back at each other, trying to pick apart each other's <laughs> arguments here for a second. Um, well, well, the mask um, itself was based off of William Shatner's face. Uh, that's what I'm saying. He said he goes. It's an so, interesting. Yeah. Anyway. I'm, okay. I thought you weren't picking on picking that up. Why? <laughs> Budge, it, it did sound like it was a leading question, almost like you were asking him something for a response, and then you were going to just jam him with a Budge Husky throwback. That's what it almost sounded like. <laughs> Joe, what do you have as far as Mike Myers before we get into your picks? That's just a legendary <laughs> uh, classic character. And, you know, knowing Skeet as I do, the fact that he has one of those masks that I'm sure he whips out year round is no surprise, gentlemen. I imagine when he's alone at the house and there's no one there and he's just a little bit bored, maybe watching TV and having a few beers. He's like, what can I do to entertain myself? Let's whip out the Mike Myers mask. Um, Joe, what are you going to do with your top three picks? Let's start with your number three favorite mask. Okay, my number three pick is a little bit as a you know a historian, history buff. I'm going to pick the uh, Guy Fawkes mask from, for, from B for Vendetta, the 2006. Oh, nice. Class. Excellent. Um, I just love that aspect in English culture that they celebrate a guy that tried to blow up their parliament. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
number two, I'm going to go with Maximus's helmet in Gladiator when he, you know, he comes out of the tunnel and he takes off his helmet and, you know, he says, like, I'm Maximus Decimator, idiot. You know, that whole badass. I almost had that one because it's like, it's like has, half helmet, half mask. And he definitely chooses the most badass helmet that's available in this like stock slave helmet. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. It has those spikes on it. Yeah. And it like has the eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Go ahead, Joe. Sorry. I had definitely had the uh, shit your pants effect that he wanted. When, <laughs> and uh, number one, and this is for like, you know, childhood sentimental reasons. And it's also, it's a badass mask. It's the, it's Batman's mask. Ah, the cow. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the Cade Crusader. Do you have like a favorite one? You talking about like cartoon Batman, Batman George Clooney Batman? You talking about Val Kilmer Batman? You talking about Christian Bale Batman? Who who are you specifically talking about, or is it just in general? When I daydream about Black Batman, if you're thinking about him, it's going to be Christian Bale, and it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's just you know. So that's your favorite mask. What about when you night dream about Batman? <laughs> like word. Uh, does that ski? That's yeah. when Adam West pops into his head. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, no, I was, so you're talking I, about like just childhood nostalgia. You're saying like you've always been a big Batman fan, and you're just saying in general that this Batman mask and cow has a like a place in your heart. Are you saying that you love the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy? Which one is it? I think it's a combination of all three. I was Batman for like eight years in a row as a child for Halloween. So. I love the character of Batman and I love the superhero is my favorite superhero by far of any of the franchises. Just like <laughs> he's able to kick ass with pretty much, you know, minimal crazy gadgets. And <laughs> yeah, and it's just, just kind of just theme punk New York. I, I dig the vibe of Gotham. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just trying to imagine like Joe having this like Halloween costume forever and then he finally outgrows it, but he cries when the utility belt finally doesn't fit around his waist it's like Ma! like <laughs> gotta get a new batman costume what when you grew out of the batman costume who did you go to next did you go straight to something else or were you just like fuck it i'm done i think my mom got me a lion costume or something <laughs> got pretty lame from there. Joe definitely had a white dinner jacket and he was james bond back right after that didn't oh yeah he went straight english Straight, straight bond, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna keep the uh, lion picture in my mind instead. <laughs> the cowardly lion or lion from? Uh, it doesn't even matter. All right, so uh, we we did Batman, Preston, Pokey. What are your top three favorite masks in movies? Start with number three, obviously. <sighs> All right, well, I've kind of had to redo a little bit here. Number three, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go out of the horror genre for a moment. And I'm going with the Loki mask from The Mask. Very, very classic uh, mask that if you put it on, will change you completely. Surprised it took this long to come off the board. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a surprise first round pick. All right, so number two and number one were some favorite masks of mine that I had as a child. They're actually still at our house. Um, and uh, number two, I'm going to go with Ghostface from Scream. To me, that is an iconic, uh, I know we're reviewing it tonight, but that is an iconic uh, horror mask. It's, you know, it's kind of loosely based on the Edward Monk uh, piece of art, and it's just badass. 
I always like I, it was one of my favorite things to do for for not just Halloween. I think some of y'all remember this. Uh, we didn't always like play cops and robbers. We would play screen. And <laughs> someone would someone would dress up as Ghostface, and um, like I always had that costume ready to go uh, in the uh, little costume drawer at my parents home there was also the one at party city like the ghost face mask that like sort of dripped red blood and sort of like recirculated back and forth yeah Yeah. i remember that one not as fun because it would break oh i did not Uh, did not know that (laughs) i mentioned that we were reviewing this and and multiple people reminded me that you indeed did often dress as ghost face and that we often did play this game (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was one of my this. This is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's just it's great, and and it was just so much fun. I always thought I always thought too, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but like Ghostface in each of the movies. Just it was hilarious the way they would uh, like maneuver around. I mean, it wasn't you know it wasn't stoic. It was always like flailing and falling and just out of control. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> something about that I thought was kind of humorous maybe but oh no no by the way it's it's gonna be a really fun when Redwall finally gets optioned into movies and we can talk about it with budge but um go ahead preston your number one uh, <laughs> favorite <laughs> number one well i'm gonna have to agree with skeet here is uh michael myers from halloween i also had that mask uh again i, I think it's literally still at my parents house i hope they don't run across it but it is um yeah i i don't think there is like without Halloween, you know, like I don't think we have a scream or 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 even uh, some other iconic horror films because it was just something about Michael Myers just walking around constantly. You had that blank stare, like like Skeet said, no remorse. Um, it kind of set the bar for like the sociopath serial killer slasher films. And, yeah, so so and, like and, basically and what you're saying is may is maybe indifference scarier than like hatred. Is that kind of what you're I, getting at? Well, I think, I mean, I, as someone who has seen like all of the Halloween films, if there's anything consistent with each of them is that like, Michael Myers never really shows any humanity. Like he never changes. He's always like the same. I mean, he's just absolutely uh, just, like void of any human emotion, it seems. And and I think that's, you know, that's depicted through the way they, they, they have him on screen, walking around like he never runs. He's the opposite of Ghostman. I mean, Ghostface. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's I, I shouldn't say he doesn't care, but it's almost like he's just so singular on his mission that like he can't be changed, like his mind can't change. It's almost like he's some like robotic machine that's like programmed to kill, right? And that's yeah. almost scarier than someone that can be persuaded right we'd like to think that actual humans can be persuaded but this person can't he just wants to do what he wants to do and that's what i think is so terrifying about like his face like you said just totally emotionless is that you can't change his mind he's just kind of doing what he wants to do um all right we kind of already talked about michael miles a little bit budge your top three what are you going to talk about uh, so I, I gave myself a little bit of a rule here because I, I felt like if we mm-hmm. if i did comic books then that would kind of like take up a little too much time i thought we might reserve that for a later date um so i guess my number three was a bit obscure i just sent it to you on text but it's the mask from the three ninjas Y'all remember that? <laughs> i just looked at that and i was like is that the three ninjas <laughs> yeah. um, nice i thought those were really cool i, I think that that movie came out like what i kind of two we were probably like four or five and oh yeah I remember, I remember that's probably the first time i'd really seen any like real kind of like japanese items so like it was like kabuki mask kind of like 
I think the most of Japanese culture I'd received at that point was like a movie that like inspired all fifth graders to think that they could dunk a basketball if they took karate <laughs> exactly. classes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, they had that cool kind of kabuki look, and it was something kind of like mystical about it. It's probably like inspired a little bit of like an interest in Japanese culture from then on. Um, so they always kind of stuck with me. Um, I was particularly fond of Colts, the blue one, kind of like UNC colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my number two is going to be uh, the Mandalorian mask. And, and I guess that kind of entails Boba Fett and uh, the one from the Disney Plus series, Mando, just because it, it's got that sleek kind of gladiator type look. It's kind of timeless and classic while still at the same time knowing these guys because of that, they mean fucking business. Mm-hmm. And it, it's pretty customizable. Like Boba Fett's got like the satellite thing and and then like some of the guys in Mando have like spikes like the, you see in Gladiator, like just like Marcus Aurelius's mask. Uh, and some like horns and things so i always thought that was really cool and kind of timeless um but i think my number one is going to be and i violated my rule but it was just i think the best one but rorschach mask from oh oh wow yeah great pick yeah it 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 is just kind of it is just out there and it sticks with you (laughs) and he's kind of like a fascinating character in the graphic novel like he's a little on pc he's all over the place and that mask constantly kind of changes with his mood, like the Rorschach test. Yeah. Um, I think it also, in the, in the show, too, it kind of, like, shows how, like, that kind of alt-right, clannish movement adopted it, you know, and kind of hijacked his mask based off his his memoirs, I think, is, was kind of cool, and it just kind of made the whole thing timeless. <laughs> uh, no, so, Buds, are you, like, sort of attracted to it just because you're almost attracted to psychology, or did you see <laughs> certain, like, images in the mask that sort of, like, revealed themselves to you during the movie, or what? what's, like, your Oh, I can definitely moment? feel like I'm reading his mood whenever you see it, and it changes. Oh, like, you weren't seeing, like, oh, man, why are my parents divorced? Why is Rorschach reminding <laughs> me of that? <laughs> exactly. Is that, is that a big butterfly? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, but... I. I never understood, like, in, in the Watchmen, the movie or whatever, like, did it ever explain how it kind of, like, constantly changed? Or was that sort of something to me that you, the viewer, was actually sort of in this sort of, I don't want to say psychotic, but you were viewing something that you wanted to see? Or was it explained to how sort of the ink sort of transformed all over his mask? I don't think it was ever explained. I mean, it's certain, I don't think it was in the graphic novel. I just think it's something that you it just kind of was left up to, you know, the reader. Yes, so open to your interpretation. Does anybody else have like anything to say about Watchmen? Because obviously it was a big show that came out recently, but the 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 movie was actually fantastic. I mean, I like the movie. Some people didn't or whatever. Did anyone else really like kind of resonate with that? Uh, I only saw the show. I'm aware of like the comic. <laughs> I did not see the uh, motion pictures, but well, I thought it. I thought it was, I thought it was cool. cool though in the show how they. You know, the show, you know, used it to like everybody like used it to hide their face, right? And like mm-hmm. kind of hijacked his whole, you know, it was just to me kind of fascinating way to take the book and the movie and to make it its own thing. Like take the mask, which is an iconic piece of that, and give it its own a new sort of identity and new meaning. Right. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Cool, so yeah. no no. <laughs> it's it's definitely like a pick that like uh <laughs> that packs a lot of things that maybe we are too intellectually incapable to unpack. <laughs> right now because of our situation (laughs) all right so what we're gonna do we're gonna move on to my top three picks and then we're gonna let skeet introduce us to the feature film scream so my top three picks are i've got the darth vader looking mask from revenge of the nerds where 
he actually like takes the girl into the moon bounce and tricks her into having sex with her. It's it's something that you couldn't get away with in movies today, and it's actually kind of creepy. But I just kind of remember it watching it at my grandmother's house when I was like nine years old on Comedy Central and being sort of enthralled with it. Number two, I've got the actual Darth Vader mask because okay. it's so it's Good. so fucking iconic in the way that just every single person when they see that movie they try to replicate his like sort of breathing pattern and his voice that like it's just i don't know it's it's actually a mask it's actually sort of keeping them alive i don't know uh number one and i'm gonna sort of talk about exactly what skeet talked about with his number two pick but i'm gonna elaborate on a little bit further i've got hamill lecter but not just hannibal lecter's mask when like the asylum mask that sort of covers his face and almost looks like he's got these fangs but i'm gonna talk about something that uh preston talked about in one of our previous episodes is the fact that he cut off that cop's face and used it as a mask to hide and escape from that well, like hotel prison or whatever he was in. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm gonna use that as his mask. So like the way that he just like beat some cop up, cut off his face, and then like the the reveal that he actually was Hannibal Lecter in that ambulance was just I thought was one of the like you used it as a best escape. I'm going to use it as best mask. So I thought it was like, it's just one of those iconic scenes. That's just so fantastic. And so much fun. And like, you just really don't expect it. Cause you have no idea what's coming. No, you don't. It is. I, I like that pick. Um, yeah. Great. Pick. I would, I would say that it's definitely a mask and it makes me think every time of the like now classic office scene where Dwight puts on the, uh, <laughs> Puts on what is it like the uh, the Boy. dummy from the uh, CPR dummy or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> cuts yeah, off absolutely. its plastic face. <laughs> yeah, actually, good stuff. It's funny you said that because I was thinking about my kind of honorable mention was going to be thinking about maybe doing the Mission Impossible masks. Oh, I've got I've got that as my honorable mention too. Yeah, <laughs> really? well, the should, first should time- everyone just start. Uh, everyone say one honor, one or two honorable mention. It's yeah, absolutely. Point. So, uh, Skeet, do you, you have anything that like was sort of left off your list and just give one, then we'll go down? There's so many. Sure, yeah. So, my original number three uh, that I'll make my honorable mention was Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was sort of like the OG mask-wearing serial killer. Yeah. Uh, so, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Texas Chainsaw originally came out in either 74 or 76, and he was 74. like... 74. So he was like the original serial killer to have a mask on before it was cool. And of course, obviously the terrifying thing about his mask is they are the faces of the people he has killed. And I think that Michael Myers kind of made masks cool for the horror genre for killers going forward with Jason and a lot of others. Uh, Leatherface, unless I'm mistaken, I think was really like the first to, uh, to, uh, to have masks on when he was doing his thing. <laughs> That's a good one. Budge, what do you got? Honorable mention. Um, I was kind of, it kind of went with the Rorschach mask, but I really think the Deadpool mask is really cool. Uh, just because it covers <laughs> up his kind of like messed up face. And um, uh, it just kind of got, a, it's got a crazy look. It's kind of like a ninja mask, but very Western too. Um, it's a little bit like half Spider-Man, but a little bit more menacing mm-hmm. at the same time. Exactly. Like you, Joe. Really see it, like I'm not fucking with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what do you think? Honorable mention before we get on the screen. All right, quick honorable mention. It's going to be the nun masks in the town when they all, 
van. Those are, those are good. Yeah. People, it's it's pretty it's pretty. Raw. I'm surprised you didn't choose Point Break. You didn't do Dead Presidents and Point Break. That's that's also up there, Matthew. That's a great point. <laughs> Preston, what do you think? Um, I have two. One kind of recent one. Uh, Bane. So Bane's mask. I thought was was pretty cool. Uh, Josh. Yeah. Iconic. <laughs> another iconic mask uh, from uh, the early '80s or maybe late '70s. I think early '80s. But Jason's hockey mask. Jason Voorhees. Um, yeah. I feel like that has to be mentioned. Yeah, obviously. I also, the, the one honorable mention that wasn't mentioned, we did talk about the Mission Impossible ones, but I've got sort of something from a pop culture icon TV show, HBO classic hit, Game of Thrones, but the faceless men in terms of Jacques oh. Picard, how he could change his face all the time. Um, that was the other one I was going to mention. So we're going to move on to our feature film, which is Scream. This was a skeet loomis pick and he's our special guest and what he's going to do is he's going to give us a little background on scream just in terms of how it fits into the genre and then also sort of set us up into our discussion so go ahead skeet yeah so i'll try and set the stage for the discussion try to give some context for what was going on uh when scream came out scream is widely considered and for good reason uh, to be the most impactful movie on the horror genre and specifically the slasher subgenre of the last 25 years. Scream came out in 1996, and around that time, the genre was really in bad shape. It had gotten very stale, very unoriginal, and most of what you were getting was just sequels to already established horror franchises, sequels that were original by the very nature of being sequels but were also just not very good movies uh for example in 1995 the year before screen came out you were getting movies like halloween six the curse of michael myers which i'm a loyal michael myers fan but by number six the franchise had gone so far off the rails as far as plot and background story of, of michael myers and it was not very well received by audiences, but it does feature Paul Rudd as an older Tommy Doyle. Um, oh, that's right. Halloween Six was actually released like two months after Clueless in '95, so '95 was a big year for Mr. Rudd. Skeet's like <laughs> giving like criticism, but also redemption qualities to it. He's like, it sucked, but Paul Rudd. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Halloween series. <laughs> to uh, to talk negatively about specifically numbers four, five, and six, but I love the series so much that like, I feel bad even like saying anything negative about it. Um, Oh yeah. You got to find positives and everything. Right. So I had to kind of like redeem or like qualify my statements, but things like Halloween five and six, they were not very well received by the public and they were kind of adding to the overall sense of staleness to the genre. Uh, But 1995 also brought you things like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, starring Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. And admittedly, I have not seen that particular installment, but to give you an idea of how it was received, uh, it has a score of (laughs) 3.3. And 1995 also brought you sequels to Candyman, Child's Play, uh, as well as other horror series so there was nothing original coming out at the time in the mid-90s and people were really just losing interest in horror movies generally and specifically the uh the slasher subgenre 
So enter Wes Craven, who by 1996 was already a horror icon for films that he had written like A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Hills Have Eyes, and Last House on the Left, as well as countless others. And Wes Craven had actually passed on Scream twice before he ended up deciding to, to make the film. And uh, fun little tidbit, up until the movie was almost completed with shooting, it was actually titled Scary Movie. Uh, since it was intended to be this self-aware, introspective commentary on the concept of a scary movie, uh, which is really what appealed to Craven and led to him ultimately deciding to make the film. And of course, that uh, <laughs> is the fun tidbit because of the scary movie franchise that centers around uh, being a parody of, of Scream as well as many others. But Scream was actually titled scary movie um, up until almost the movie was finished being made. So the movie was made and released as Scream, and it can completely change the, the vibe of horror movies going forward. The, the idea of attractive, sex-obsessed teens getting picked <laughs> off by one was not necessarily a new one, but Scream took that idea and kind of intersected it with pop culture in a way that was hip and relatable in a way that other previous slashers typically were not. And that quickly led to other slasher films that copied that format in the late nineties. Like I know what you did last summer, urban legend, the faculty, uh, and really most other slashers that are still coming out today. Uh, then the movie also added this extra layer of fear in that the killer was not this, abstract mutant villain like Jason, Michael Myers, Chucky, Leatherface, anyone like that, but it was just another teen, or in this case, spoiler alert, teens, uh, <laughs> amongst a group of friends, which added this kind of extra relatable sense of it could happen to me type of vibe. And then finally, the, the film was unique in that it was this meta self-aware movie that took the so-called rules of horror movies and deliberately leaned into them, almost sort of making fun of itself. So it had this sort of comedic element to it that really hadn't been seen before in horror, and I think really continues to this day. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how the how and why as far as what led to Scream getting made uh, at this particular juncture of the genre and the impact that it had on the future of horror going forward. Yeah, so... Absolutely. So last week we we talked about Cabin in the Woods, which which maybe is sort of we would say like a grandchild of Scream when you actually think about it. So Cabin in the Woods has like sort of this satire parody element to it, but Scream was actually the predecessor to it in the sense that it's satirizing and par parodying like some of the previous films. And like Skeet just said, like the the uh, the genre was maybe in a rut. So maybe the way to kick out of it was almost to make fun of it is kind of what he was talking about. Make fun of it, make make the audience self-aware that you know it kind of has its flaws, but let's also sort of embrace them and enjoy them at the same time. So maybe when we start talking about Scream, maybe we sort of like almost want to talk about that first, right? So Scream has, like Skeet said, like this almost meta self-aware com component to it. Um, so maybe like we can compare and contrast the two between Cabin in the Woods and Scream, uh, or maybe we can just talk about Scream at first. Like wh which film do you think is more insightful 
or a better comment on the genre? Which one do you think actually sort of like has uh, maybe, like I said, maybe a better comment, maybe a better sort of way of making fun of it or maybe better like way of sort of making us sort of look back and say, oh, wow, that's actually what, what the genre is about. Or which film do you think is um, best achieved its goal of existing within multiple, multiple genres within the same, like I said, same multiple genres, whatever. So like which one sort of like exists within the comedy genre and the horror genre and like sort of combines the two elements the best. Do you think like like any of them do it the same way? Do you think anyone achieved it better? Which one do you think, Skeet? I think they differ in the sense that Cabin in the Woods is almost sort of more on the parody end of the spectrum and Scream is more on the satire end of the spectrum because Scream still, while it has the comedic elements to it, I think Scream still sets out to be a horror movie. And that's not to say Cabin in the Woods doesn't, but I think Scream still has at its core the intention of being a horror movie, but it calls itself out. And throughout the entire movie, whether it's through uh, Sidney Prescott having her initial conversation with the killer on the phone saying that, you know, all horror movies are the same and it has the big breasted lead actress going up the stairs instead of out the front door. And then she proceeds to do that exact thing, <laughs> the exact same rubric. Or and in the various scenes with Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy, he has his—he's pretty much in the movie to 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 lay out the rules at various times throughout the movies and kind of Break the that self-aware uh, voice of the movie. Um, so I think Scream. If I had to choose between the two, I think Scream holds up better as as the be doing the better job of holding up a mirror to itself and, and really providing that overall commentary on the genre. Well, you bring up a good point, like in the sense that like uh, each film takes two different mechanisms to, like you said, Skeet, to hold up the mirror to itself. So Scream almost like has, like you said, Randy, who's the Jamie Kennedy character, who sort of like constantly sort of narrates away how this is going to happen. And also Sid does as well. Nev Campbell does. They all sort of sort of narrate how a traditional horror movie happens. But in Cabin in the Woods, we actually have these sort of two characters who are operating the show and they kind of tell us, right? Like they're not within the story or the framework of the story. They're actually controlling the framework of the story. Whereas these characters are within the story and they don't know what's going to happen, right? So there is that different element where in Scream, they don't know what's going to happen, but they they know the genre in general. Where, but we're in Cabin in the Woods. We have these two characters who are actually pulling the levers because they want the genre to happen. Uh, Preston or Pogi, what what do you think? And like in terms of, did you think this uh, this film sort of? Uh, did you think it was? I, I don't know, different than Cabin in the Woods. Did you think it like on the spectrum in terms of satire and parody? Like where do you balance it in terms of how they relate to each other? Um, well, I agree with a lot of what Skeet said. I, I think definitely there is satire and there is like this, yeah, self-aware quality of Scream. Uh, but I think Scream was like set out primarily to just like dissect slasher flicks. Um, I think like with Cabin in the Woods, it was like this whole, like the entire kitchen sink deal, you know, like it's, it's like, look, we're gonna, we're gonna basically tackle every genre and subgenre of horror and you're going to see it in all these different kind of monsters we have because they're they're from the slasher all the way to the fucking merman or whatever <laughs> so like you know i think i think cabin in the woods is probably very much and i think uh goddard and whedon are are influenced 
were influenced, still are to this day, by Wes Craven and a lot of slasher stuff, but I and in Scream probably. But I think, yeah, Scream I think was very uh, was a little bit more targeted, uh, and thus gives it a little bit more. I, like Skeet was saying, like there's it's definitely a little bit more serious vibe, even though you go back and watch it. And kind oh of yeah, I think I think you're right. Same stuff, but but yeah, Kevin right, the Woods is like the whole deal. Yeah, it's they're, definitely they're more focused. To... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're actually probably 100 percent right in terms of Kevin the Woods is a parody and satire and the whole genre in general, and Scream is definitely more focused in terms of something way more specific. But what, what were you thinking in terms of where would you rate this after the movie we saw last week versus this in terms of the spectrum and parody and satire? Well, I think it, it's interesting because it, it hits some of the things we've been talking about, not just with um, Cabin in the Woods, but even before that, and maybe some Lost episodes, too, about um, touching in different boxes and being on different and being on the spectrum. Like, I think one of the underrated aspects of this movie was that it's a pretty good mystery, too. You well, know, yeah, that's that's you know, it, the question number two. Yeah. And I, I'd kind of forgotten totally. about that on totally. rewatch. Um, and I think that, that that's kind of what makes, you know, Scream good, whereas where it's like, OK, it's slasher. It's kind of that teen campiness, but it's also there's mystery to it, too, whereas Cabin in the Woods was like comedy, sci fi, um, teens in the woods, uh, fantasy monster. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so you knew who was going to do it in Cabin in the Woods, but you didn't maybe know what the it, ending was. Exactly. But this this yeah. one definitely had sort of like a whodunit vibe, which we're going to get to in the question, second question. Joe, what do you think in terms of how you rated this in like satire and sort of like parody and sort of real horror? Where would you put this on the spectrum and also relate it maybe a little bit to what we talked about last week? Well, this is almost the paradigm for the, you know, the satirish slasher film, right? You know, you're kind of like dealing with the master class when you watch Scream. So it's, <laughs> you're going to get actually scared when you watch Scream. You know, like they, they're going to be making fun of the genre, but at the same time, they're going to hit you with some actually frightening moments of the film where you're like, holy shit, like you see Drew Barrymore you know gutted hanging from a tree that's you know that's pretty hardcore for 1996 for just regular audiences not just your hardcore kind of horror buff um yeah and cabin yeah. the woods i don't think you even saw really anybody get cut up uh you saw a decapitation well <laughs> I, I will say this like there wasn't uh, or maybe i watched an edited version of this or like because i did actually probably watch an edited version of this was it as graphic as like you're thinking or was it, did you actually like see her get gut? I know you got you see her getting hanged from the the tree or whatever. Maybe, yeah, you did for sure at the beginning. That that was that beginning scene, you know, where she's yeah. like nowhere and uh, her parents come home. He's like, call the cops, go to the McKenzie's house, and her mother, yeah, <laughs> or and she's like, Aah! you know, and you the pan, camera pans to Drew Barrymore's body, you know, gutted, you know, entrails hanging out, yeah. You know? I remember that when that, like that scene, and and I, I'm sure we'll kind of touch on the opening scene a little bit, but because I think it's very iconic. But that scene, like that violence, that gore, I even at like a young age, I just remember it being like a big deal. Like it was like a kind of a oh, yeah, exactly. kind of crossed the line here in 1996. Well, it certainly like sets the stage, and it. It was, it was kind of a little long, but at the same time, like, they got two people, right? They got the boyfriend that's, like, duck-tied to the chair, and they wound up gutting Drew Barrymore, who's sort of hung from the tree. So 
also it's incredibly what, fast. Like he turned off the she turned <laughs> off the lights, and by the time they were back on, like all of his intestines were out. <laughs> all you have to do is just go, yeah. and then it's done. Skeet, would you have gotten that question right? The uh, the Friday the Thirteenth question. Yeah, about you know who the, who was the killer in the first movie. Yeah, you, I mean Jason's mom was originally the killer on, on Jason's behalf in the first one and uh Jason didn't appear until the sequel and actually he didn't even have the hockey mask until later on after the sequel he actually had a burlap sack on so yeah Jason t- took a while to become Jason in that series but uh, I'd like to think that I would have gotten that one when when I was on the hot seat so well, they they still would have killed him I mean like <laughs> I think the game wasn't the game it was just more to see if they knew had some type of knowledge but they still would have found a way to kill Skeet if we're getting down to it, sorry, Skeet, you wouldn't have survived this movie. <laughs> no, I never thought I would have survived. I just I would have got, I would have found out, found a way to trip me up. There's, there's no doubt. <laughs> this is once you, if you see the movie, like I think I saw Scream first or before I ever saw Nightmare. <laughs> you know, it kind of gave it away, and I, you always remember those questions. This is like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and like Skeet sort of is Sir Lancelot, and is at that bridge, and they're like. Who would and like he like asked him some horror question and Skeet sort of asked him some horror question in response. He goes, "Oh, I don't know," and he slips back and like shoots up into the air and falls into the crevasse. Uh- <laughs> we have now reached our obligatory mention of Monty Python in every episode. I do, I do that just to get Joe involved. So um, let's talk a little bit. Like Budge mentioned, the mystery element into this because, like Budge said, there is actually a big like who done it involved in this. We get so many clues, so many different things involved. So um, as an audience, we're always trying to figure out who the killer is. In some ways, David Arquette's character, Dewey, and Courtney Cox's character, who is Gail, represent the audiences because they're sort of the objective observers in all of this. Um, I know the movie is primarily a mystery or, and not like a Sherlock Holmes type of thing, but would you have liked to have had watched them sort of unravel and figure things out more? Like, would there have been more clues? Or, or like, would you have liked to them have more clues that they should have sort of put the pieces together or 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 are you sort of satisfied with how the story progressed skeet what do you think in terms of like the mystery like do you think the story sort of stalled a little bit on that or do you think it could have done more i don't know i I think it did a pretty good job of keeping you guessing throughout the, the whole time especially especially on the issue of there being multiple killers i mean you know who done it you always think exactly that it's it's a who not not multiple people um, yeah, and they do a good job of, of misdirecting you and leading you in different ways. You know, they the first person you suspect is Billy Loomis, but then before you even know that there are two people working in tandem, they the killer strikes while Billy's in police custody. So you really question, like, oh man, like I, he's not the killer. So who is it? And I don't know. I think it does a pretty good job of misdirecting you and th- and, and leading you into thinking certain things and, and never really figuring out what is going on. <laughs> the, the one thing I'll ask you about that is because like his cell phone drops, right? And then like we kind of have a little bit of like, talk about the cell phone in terms of, like uh, I think Dewey talks about cloning or whatever. Could there have been like maybe something a little bit about like finding clues about that self? I, I don't know. Is maybe I'm thinking a little too hard. Maybe it's it's the year 2000 and you can't actually do th- anything like that or did you think that there could have been other ways in sort of detecting who it was who was doing it, but they were focused on like the slasher elements of it? That's maybe that's what I'm getting at in terms of should could this have 
morphed into a little bit more of a mystery thing, but they focused more on the slasher stuff. More, to, to that point, to, to the cell phone scene, I think it's sort of like a sign of the times. And it's, it's easy for us with our 2020 glasses on to think like, you know, why would that raise red flags? But I guess in 96, when the cell phone falls out of his pocket, you know, Sidney Prescott has this like, what is this sorcery that has fallen out of your body? And, you know, yeah. no one had that on them at the time. So it was almost sort of like a, I guess, you know, I don't necessarily remember the how many people had cell phones in 96. <laughs> imagine like seeing that on somebody being like, you're the one calling me from inside the house. Like this has to be you. Yeah. You know, Matthew, I think to your to kind of what you're saying too, though, I, I would my personal taste, you know, I, I'm lean more of a mystery fan than I do horror. So like I thought you could have gone more into like maybe the background of Sydney's mom's murder and like maybe had oh yeah, absolutely digging back through the investigation and like being like, oh, and then maybe seeing that like Billy's she had had some affairs, one of which was with Billy's dad. But I do think that 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 some of that stuff could have been in there and got left at the cutting room floor. Like it, you know, it, that might. I don't know how well that would have fit into the slasher. You know, that would have become more of a detective story than like a serial killer one. Well, that, um, that's a very good point. It would have been, it would have been neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to change this into sort of like a detective yeah. seven type story versus like this is a story about the kids. So uh, I was just saying, was the balance? Did you feel like the balance was correct? Preston, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought so for what it what it is and what it or what it was and what it is still today. I mean, I. You know, I think that was, and I, we have these kind of discussions. I just think that was Wes Craven's intent. Um, and it's kind of a, I mean, it is already like a two hour movie close to it. So, I mean, part of me is, uh, yeah, I'm always down for a little bit more detective shit. You know? <laughs> like, it's, it's cool, but, but it's, it's hard for me to go back and watch that movie. And like I just did and, and think like, ah, you know, I wish it had done this, done that just because I, I just love it so much. Um, but I mean, I see where you're coming from. I think, um, you know, it's more of a preference thing. <laughs> Joe, what'd you think? Would you like to see sort of like the cops more involved? Would you like to see uh, Courtney Cox more involved and sort of like putting the pieces together or what, what, what were your thoughts? Yeah. If, if you could have added a, a half hour onto the movie, I would have loved to have seen the hokiness of <laughs> and, uh, see, do, do we putting the pieces together? Well, is this a question like, so maybe like you're the editor, Joe, like, would you have taken some stuff out to add some of that? Like, not just add a half hour, like what would maybe would you have taken out to add some of that to it? That's a good question about, you know, if we're starting to subtract stuff from the film. Um, you know, I don't want to tamper with the film at all. So, but it would have been, it would have, if we're going to talk about any kind of character development, I really, I don't think they really impressed upon you how gruesome sydney's mother's murder was so yeah i think that's a good point a little bit like of a flashback to like some nasty gory scene of you know sydney prescott's mother getting slashed up like at the pier or something you know what i mean like that would it would have made more sense in terms of how she felt i mean like obviously we know that like if your mother dies in sort of a gory incident like if you just tell us we sort of emotionally respond to it but like you said joe if like they almost show it or like talk about it more, it would have resonated more with us in terms of how she sort of dealt with the current situation. Absolutely. I think that would have added a lot to the film. Knowing like what I know about the opening scene and how like it was, again, like extremely intentional, like Wes Craven knew what what he wanted to do by like killing off 
essentially the film's biggest star, Drew Barrymore, like immediately, like surprise mm-hmm. every uh, surprise everyone. So I don't think this actually happened, but I mean, I do wonder like if there was a, ever a consideration to start the film with that background of of like maybe maybe having like the opening scene be, uh, you know, Billy and Stu obviously dressed yeah. up or whatever, killing Maureen, and then having that context like really ingrained in you. But you know, then you don't have like. And then the you got your bear who, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it. Maybe the the story was different, but then sort of casting the production, the executives at Paramount or whatever were like, "Hey, we got Drew Barrymore. She wants to do this, so they have to change the story a bit." And it does alter how the actual sort of, you know, like I said, story. I just said story so many times, but the narrative sort of structures a little bit. So yeah, you never know because there's so much money involved. Like like you said, Preston, you really never know. But like like, but we're just critics. We're just sort of asking questions. Uh, real quick fun fact if anybody knows so uh obviously drew barrymore was in that scene and she was killed off do you know who Wes craven was considering outside of her um because he actually had her uh as good being sydney prescott and then I, i think he had her as like the lead role and it was considering someone else for that opening scene is it ET? Seeing a list of, of some of the people that were considered for the role of Prescott, but for the role of Casey Becker, see, from what I always read was that the role of Sidney Prescott, Drew Barrymore was actually originally slated to be to play Sidney Prescott, and then right. the conflict. Yeah, she wasn't able to do it, and she uh, she eventually agreed to play the role of Casey Becker, and this kind of goes on a little tangent, but. If you look at the poster for Scream, you know there are like five characters. Staggered that was going to be my that was be my next question. Go. Yeah, so there are like five characters staggered out, and who's in the foreground is Drew Barrymore, and who has yep. like top billing on the poster is Drew Barrymore. So audiences were going into this movie thinking they were seeing a Drew Barrymore. Exactly. Picture. But she was huge by this point, um, and then to see her die off in the way that she did ten minutes into the movie or less, you know. It gave, <laughs> gave the movie this immediate tone of like anything can happen in this movie. So kind of to the to I think Joe's previous point of like maybe exploring the background of Sydney's mom and Stu and Billy and all that offhand. I think you really lose that initial shock value that that first scene gives you. And right. Wes Craven wasn't afraid to do those types of scenes. You know, if you look at Last House on the Left, I mean, that was a pretty shocking movie for the 70s so i don't think west craven was afraid to go there from a filmmaking standpoint but i think he really wanted to give this big actress this big gory gruesome shocking death at the beginning to to keep the audience's guessing to make them think all right all bets are off we don't know what's going to happen in this movie yeah he was like i mean i will say like i mean he was really set on was like i i I want this this moment like this is this is why people are going to be talking about it. it and it was i mean that was a huge deal and and yeah she was easily the uh, huge actress at the time probably the highest paid on the entire set and he was <laughs> like she's gonna be gone in 10 minutes and you're all gonna be like what the fuck that's but, exactly what i was asking was was she like in most of the promotional material for the leading up of this movie like people thought she was gonna be the main character and it turned out to be nev campbell i, I don't know but i will say this i think they gave her the like do you want to say like the 
the most gratuitous, the biggest death in in terms of the whole movie, right? Like that first scene's almost like 15 minutes, 20 minutes almost. Like it really almost it sets the stage obviously, but they do give her a lot of time in terms of to die and also to sort of act it out. I know that she's not the star of the movie, but in some senses they they do almost make her sort of like the star of dying if that if that i don't know if that makes sense right like dying they're like like she dies in the most timely fashion like she like it's like it, it is it's it's not like it's not a throwaway scene at all like they give her her just due respect in terms of how like they they paid probably a much money for her, so they probably gave her a lot of time but it's it's a fantastic scene like everyone agrees but like I said, it, like it, it, you're right in the sense that she's not the star, but they do like it. They do give her the time of day on the screen, almost like justify why she's there, if that makes sense. Well, so does anybody have a guess as to so when she was going to be Sydney Prescott, Drew Barrymore, who they were thinking for Casey Becker, and it was a huge star in the '90s. The <laughs> in fact, Skeet, you mentioned the film earlier with one of your marquee picks, Jamie Lee Curtis. No, yeah, because <laughs> they mentioned her so many times. <laughs> Don't say it's the child from Mrs. Doubtfire. Wait, I'm check, making sure that I think that was I think that was Skeet's picks. <laughs> yeah, it was because he was talking about Halloween. I'll go ahead and tell you. All right, all right. what's that? Someone from the original Halloween? Or no, Halloween? but who was tied to Paul Are Rudd? Was, was in a film with Paul Rudd in the '90s. Oh, I would I would guess it's Silverstone, and I think it's kind of funny because I'm to play trivia boy here. You mentioned that it was in one of Matthews or that I'm one of Skeet's picks uh, that Alicia Silverstone was in. Uh, it was also in one of Joe's picks. She was in Batman Forever. Excellent, excellent point. Good '90s All Star. Yeah. <laughs> Had we talked about the ending yet? Do we want to move on to the ending and talk about like how uh, the reveal, or or had we just sort of move? Where were we? At? I'm sorry. Um, we can, we can go right into the ending. I think all right we'll talk about the beginning. So. Let's yeah. move on to the ending a little bit because I always love to talk about the ending. Uh, were you, were you satisfied with the reveal in terms of because we already talked about sort of this was sort of a mystery and a who done it, and did you think that what was their original plan? Right, because Billy almost tried to kill Sid early in the film. Did their plan get sort of reversed? Did their plan get changed? And how did you think that altered the way they were doing things? And did it change like once they like, uh, did their motivations change once that happened? Did their motivations make sense? Uh, like, I, I'm just sort of curious because the whole thing sort of altered, right? Because once they like sort of tried to kill Sid within the first 30 minutes of the movie, it doesn't almost, in some ways, doesn't make sense what their motivations were afterwards. Uh, do, do you think like uh, everything sort of made sense to answer your first question you're like yeah i was satisfied at the end because like i said earlier i, I think you know you you're led to believe your first suspect in your head is billy you never you never think Stu throughout the entire movie you think he's there as comic relief along with dewey and you don't want to suspect that it's matthew Liv- lillard who's just going all out throughout this entire movie just oh so over the top <laughs> I know. So, at least to me, like I never suspected Stu being in on it, and let alone there being two people in general. Yeah, Billy Loomis always stays there in the back of your mind, but you almost kind of dismiss him when the killer strikes while he's in police custody. And then 
you never really know how the Sydney's mom cotton weary thing is going to come into play until the very end they tie it all together. But to the point of like, yeah, trying to kill Sid in the first 30 minutes, I think it goes to show, and I think Preston made the point early on that these are amateur killers. Like, you know, these aren't yeah stoic business like Michael Myers, Jason Borges types. Like, they they have a plan, but they're not experts. Like, they're going with the flow, and they're going with what they have to do, like, on a – not really a day-by-day basis. This is only, like, a couple of days in the movie, but, like, an hour-by-hour basis, kind of making it up as they go along, but with one end goal in mind. So, no, it doesn't bother yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, it's – so, so they they definitely kill like Henry Winkler's character, the principal, whatever, which kind of makes sense that they're sort of disgruntled, like psychotic students or whatever. But then they like kill Stu's girlfriend, right? Like it almost like I didn't understand why they were doing that, other than just sort of shock value. Um, like I said, though, it's like was the original plan just to kill Sydney and then like leave it be, and then they almost got bloodthirsty once it didn't happen. Maybe that's the the question I was getting at because like was the original plan just to like kill her in this sort of just like, all right, that's it. But then it just sort of morphed into something else. What do you think, Budge? You know, I think it's weird to put motivations on him because in hindsight, I'm not even sure it really makes sense. Like if your motivation is that you are so upset with Sydney's mom, you already killed her. Yeah. Like, what? Like, you know, cause she, she broke up your Good family. Point. Well, well, like, well, you can, that, you can kill you know. Sydney and frame her dad too. That makes yeah, sense. But like, but there's no, there's no reason to kill the, really, the first though. two people. Like, yeah. They didn't, it's not like Sydney or the dad, you know, you already got your revenge. You killed her mom, which is twisted. Don't get me wrong. But like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't didn't think that much into it, but I I thought, you know, for like one second, I was like, ah, that didn't really make a ton of sense, but I still enjoyed it. I was, I'll put it this way. I remember watching this movie. I was shocked because it was Stu. Like you're true. You're correct. Like Billy, you're always like, and in the end you realize he could have called her from the prison phone call or the jailhouse call, you know, yeah. when she was at Dewey's house and she knew, and he knew where she was going, you know, and you're like, Oh, okay. He could, it could still be him when she points it out. <laughs> what do you guys say, Joe? It's like you got something cooking in that brain of yours. When we were discussing, you know, Sydney's mom's murder and the fact that her father really wasn't a part of the film other than the, that he's out of town and is not there. But you would figure that why would her father leave Sydney alone by herself after her mother has been brutally murdered <laughs> last year? Up on <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a really important convention, Joe. I think like like the uh, whatever he's selling, maybe it's like lawn mowing equipment is only available at a discount. During this time, he's actually just Buckmasters. He was <laughs> <laughs> couldn't miss the Masters convention. Yeah, he can't miss the Buckmasters convention. I think it's like in Las Vegas, and he's just got to, you know, place pay some money on like the ponies and the craps table. What do you got, Preston? Yeah, I mean, I think what everybody said. Uh, I mean, I agree with most of it. I just, I think uh, we all we all know the, the motive there for Billy. I think Stu is just kind of. You know, it's just this crazy character who clearly has, uh, I guess, no cares in his life. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to tag along killing people. You know, he's just so ridiculous. Um, So, I mean, the ending is, in many ways, it seems like the ending is like really like throwing in a lot of the cliches. Uh, I mean, even there's even that one point where uh, 
Danny, Jamie Kennedy's character. I think that's Danny. But he like points out, you know, like after they've killed, killed, uh, so to speak, um, Billy. It's like he's the killer's never dead when you think they're dead, and he wakes up, you know. And it's like one more, yeah. last more cliche. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's just again true to form and true, true to the the nature of the film. Um, but I remember think- seeing it the first time and being like, oh my god, like they're the killer. It's Stu. Do you think? Do you think they would have succeeded without Sydney sort of figuring it out? Like in terms of, do you think the framing plot was plausible? Coming from two attorneys, we got Skeet and we got Budge. Do you think that that framing plot was plausible? Do you think they would have survived in a court of law? <laughs> What's uh, far be it from us to give criminal defense advice here? <laughs> would you represent Ghostface? We're going to put a disclaimer on this one. No, I always thought, and I, and I about it again as I rewatched it this time. Dropping the voice changer and the cell phone right into the front pocket, I always thought like, all right, if, th- if their plan were to work and Sydney's dad was found with that on him, like it seemed a little too obvious. Like if he was found with that, well, on him, also like, Billy had sort of the uh, the corn syrup on him, so they would have known he faked something, right? That's what I was thinking the whole time. This was post OJ, so this was post DNA evidence. So that like they would have known something was going down with like a red corn syrup thing on his shirt. They would have tested that shit. But yeah. what do you think? I think that and that kind of actually now that I'm thinking about it, it might go to what they were trying to cover up Stu's involvement by killing the girlfriend Tatum. But um I think well, I mean the thing that stands out too is if Billy called her from the jail, you know, that would be on record somewhere. Plus they'd probably have a recording of it. Also, you know. if he did do it, I mean, how did he keep the little voice box? You, they would de- totally confiscate that. Right. Would, you know, once, once again, you're, you're getting a little nitpicky. But, <laughs> uh, I agree. I agree, though. I mean, there's, there's, there's holes. Any good defense attorney could try to find them for the dad. He would have keistered it. I was about to say. I guess he could have put it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to the Tatum point, like you know, why kill Stu's girlfriend Tatum? Uh, like in the end these are two teenagers who essentially want to they want their own horror movie you know they, they even say like we're gonna our plan is to come back and make this you know make a sequel because in these days you gotta have a sequel and <laughs> um so it's almost just like they're just following the rubric of just getting the body count up and there is also and of course there are debates as to whether Stu or billy is behind each kill but if you remember at the end, Billy, although he actually has motive, um, he does make the comment of like, you know, these days, like you, re- I can't remember the exact quote, but like, do you really even need a motive? So, you know, it, it, while there may not really seem to be much of a point behind Tatum's kill, I think that like they're just following their rubric of getting the body count up, and like they even say like, who needs a motive? Like we, you know. That one was the weirdest one to me because like everyone's if you've ever been to a high school party, which I think we all have, is everyone goes to the refrigerator to get beers. It's almost like no one even noticed that she was like hanging from the garage door until the end because but everyone literally goes to the refrigerator to get beers within like every 30 seconds. So that was kind of like the one murder. I was like, why isn't anyone noticing this at all? Like well, it, was, it was so loud. But I mean, yeah. I guess they're listening to music. But I mean, it was maybe West Craven just, just thought, "I've got this kill in my head. Like, I got to figure out a way to get it." In the yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
He saw the set and he's like, actually, we're going to put someone in the doggy door. I don't, I don't know. They're pretty big houses. And then, that, you know, at a, a good high school party, you knew where to hide your beer. So there was like a sneaky back fridge, perhaps. <laughs> sneaky back fridge. I think, yeah. I think Tatum and Stu were just like, we're going to yeah. take the back fridge. Everybody can stick with the uh, fucking kitchen fridge. Yeah, well, that's that's 100% plausible. All right. So what we're going to do, we're going to move on to the wheel here and then we're going to rate the movie. So the wheel topics are are choose your costume. That's number one. Number two is you got a friend in me. That's actually a repeat for the number from last week. Uh, number three is take your chances. Number four, take a chill pill. Five, no compromising positions. Number six, a regular old Versace. Seven, whammy. Eight, I'm getting real tired of this shit. Nine, the good, the bad, the ugly, and ten, a respin. So here we go. We're gonna do three of these. These sound the wheel, fun. The wheel is spinning. On. The wheel is spinning. So number three, take your chances. Neither Billy nor Stu are physically dominant, and they chose a small weapon. Give me your odds on surviving an attack from Ghostface. What do you think, Skeet? You think you could defeat Ghostface with like him having just a knife and sort of like almost a droopy robe? What do you think? <laughs> I mean, like I was going to take my chances with an iconic serial killer. Ghostface would be it. They, they, <laughs> they are the clumsiest, there's no doubt, but ultimately they, they, they almost get everyone they seek to get. So, um, I'm going to put my chances at just under 50-50. I think everyone's got a chance to get away from Ghostface because all the chase scenes are all are like – I don't the, think they're incredibly athletic. The scary movie scenes with the chase with Ghostface are almost like identical to the chase scenes in Scream. Like he's pretty damn clumsy. Like yeah, not a chance. So and- – and they're parroting it too, you know. Like, right. um, <laughs> what do you think, Bud? Bud, you think you could? Uh, I I think that you I would have better chances against uh, against Billy. I think Stu would be a little <laughs> bit harder because Matthew Lillard's got that reach, man. He's pretty fucking tall, you know. If he's yeah. Got a knife, point. you know. I think I'm, I'm a little maybe a little stockier than Billy, so you know, fuck you, Billy. But I don't stew. Scoot Shaggy. Joe, do you think you you think you had an advantage over Ghostface, or do you think you would be a uh, victim? Well, it just depends on if they had the drop on me, you know, bro. <laughs> I'm actually able to get to my loaded shotgun. Then Ghostface with his little buck knife is going to eat some buck shot. By the way, by the way, Joe is like Danny DeVito, and it's always sunny where he's just like got a fucking revolver taped to like the back of his back. And he's always got it ready and loaded. Uh, so I, I would never, I would never mess with Joe Fine. What do you think, Preston? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, I, you know, I'll just give it 50 50. Let's say like I don't have a knife or anything and he's just jumps, you know, jumps me. But I think there's an unpredictable, uh, unpredictable nature to Ghostface in that, like, yes, he's very clumsy, but doesn't lack in like maybe like energy and just really want to as far as killing but it's kicked in the balls like two or three times but still like yeah the beer bottle to the keeps balls. going yeah I, yeah i yeah. mean i think the physically dominant part is, is, is key because it's you know if it's if it's those two scrawny fellows i feel pretty good <laughs> all right so we're gonna move on we just 
selected number one, choose your costume. So just for a moment, pretend you want to go on a sociopathic rampage and murder your friends with a knife. How would you disguise yourself? Skeet, I'm going to give you this very, very, very important topic. Go ahead. How would you dress up <laughs> if you wanted to kill your friends? <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the show, I think at least like, what are we, 2020? I think in at least six or seven of the last eight Halloweens, I've worn the same mechanics jumpsuit and Michael Myers mask. I'm going... I'm going single mechanics jumpsuit, just that intimidating, <laughs> motionless Michael Myers mask. I'm, I'm going to be a copycat killer from Michael Myers. Skeet Loomis pays homage to previous killers. He's not an original. What do you think, Preston? I, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, like I said, he used to dress up a lot as Ghostface. Seems like he can move around a lot in that, you know? So, I mean, if if we're going with, with a uh, an existing... Famous costume. I got a good ghost face. Just well, you can make I up some original. I don't, I don't have to buy it. I don't know. Maybe like a. Uh, Preston's like, I want to kill, but I want to be thrifty at the same time. Yeah, but, yeah I'm not trying to waste, waste money here. But I think, what I do think, you think combining, combining something yeah. is kind of fun. Uh, I think that uh, kind of going back to our mass talk, I think that it, I could maybe stick with the black robe, but do just some crazy Japanese kabuki mask, like just a white mask with like some red or something. And you just saw me come in there with some huge machete. Be scary as shit. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, what hey, do you are think? You, are you, is this, sorry, but Bud, are you bearded in this case? <laughs> I'd have the mask. You wouldn't know. Okay, cool. The mask that drips over his whole neck. Yeah. Joe, what do you think? How are you dressing if you got to kill your friends? I think I'm going to go with like, I'm going to dress up like an EMS first responder. And so <laughs> be that like when actually I'm like slitting everybody's throat and they're like, it's really him. It's like, <laughs> that's going to like blend into the crowd of the cops and the ambulances and shit and I can get away. Zero chance that was thought of off the cuff. You put some thought into this. That's why, that's why I uh, let Joe go last. Joe has not done I let Joe have like 30 seconds of thought into it. Yeah, so we're going to do one more and then we're going to rate the movie. So um, take your chances. Neither Billy nor Stu are actually, never mind. We're doing number two. Um, you got a friend in me. I can find, <laughs> I can kind of understand one person snapping, but convincing your best friend to be a murderer too is crazy to me. So pretend you're Billy and create his pitch to Stu to go on a killing spree with them. All right, so Skeet, how would you convince your best friend to say, hey, I want to kill some other friends? Go for it. I don't think it takes much twisting of the arm to get Matthew Lillard or Stu Mocker on board <laughs> with anything. I think he's whatever. He could, it's sort of like that episode of Seinfeld, Kramer, you know, hey, you want to get, he said, I pretty much could have said anything right there. And Kramer's like, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll start that answer over. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me see. I don't think that it would take much twisting of the arm to get Stu Mocker involved and on board with any plan. He's, he's pretty impressionable. He just seems hyped up and ready to go for anything. So I think as soon as Billy uh, approached him and just said, you know, I mean, I'm pretty pissed about what Sydney's mom did to my family. Uh, you got anything coming up, you know, a year from now or, you know, today and resume a year from now and, and Stu just like, no, baby, let's do this. <laughs> yeah. 
I think you're right. It was almost like you gave him a little carrot the first one, which is was a reasonable excuse. Right? I shouldn't say reasonable. There's no reason to like frame somebody for life and murder, or prison, or whatever. But at the very least, it actually had some motive. But this second one didn't. So it was almost like he like gave him a reasonable kind of response, and then he just goes, "Well, you already did that. Let's keep on doing it." Uh, Budge, what, what, how would you approach a best friend to do a sociopathic rampage if you were going to do it? I don't know. There's a couple of people I grew up with that I'm pretty sure if I pitched this would just say, okay, whatever. Um, I hope it's not me, but go for it. No, it's it's definitely Griff Waller. <laughs> Feel free to edit that if you need to. Um, yeah, I, I kind of think it's what Milan said. You either go for the most pumped up guy, or you you pitch you pitch like a money angle or like a revenge angle. I don't know. You maybe maybe you lean on to some like teen angst. <laughs> Preston, what do you think? Uh, I mean, a pitch to Stu, it's got to be really easy. You probably you probably offered him like, you know, like a couple of like eights or an ounce of weed or something. <laughs> it was like, look, man. You know, it might get a little freaky. It might, it might escalate. But for the most part, like we're just gonna have fun. You're gonna get some weed after, and you know, we'll 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 get, we'll jet out of here and head <laughs> even further south. You could have possibly even framed him. What do you think, Joe? How would you have pitched Maybe. your best friend to like do a murderous sociopathic thing with you? Well, this reminds me of that part in the in the town where Ben Affleck goes up to uh, Jeremy Renner and is like, "We're gonna do something to some people that." you cannot ask any questions about and we can never speak about it again. Are you in? He's like, yeah, let's go. Oh, so man. That, that's kind of the deal that, that you're kind of putting forward. So, yeah, somebody like Andrew McCorkle, that'd have to be like, <laughs> about to go fuck some people up and you can't ever mention this again. <laughs> and, well, that, we'll we'll but, say, um, are, you the, are you in the mood to commit a small felony? Yeah. <laughs> you remember that like, the care that he kind of gave Stu or at least like the implied carrot was towards the beginning when they're sitting around the fountain and they're talking about Casey and Steve getting murdered. And I think, you know, Randy or somebody says, didn't, you know, ask Stu, like, didn't you used to date her or didn't she dump you for Steve? And he says, you know, he tries to cover up and make it look like, no, he actually dumped her to date Tatum. So that actually kind of is Stu's motivation at the beginning, um, you know, to get back at Casey. Maybe that's how he enticed him to start this string of murders was, Hey, we'll get the, uh, we'll first get the girl that dumped you. And that's going to be kind of our, that's going to set the example. So I don't know. Maybe that's and her new boyfriend too. No. Right. And the guy that she dumped him for. No. Maybe it was as simple as like, they just like, like, well, we don't really like these friends. That much. <laughs> no, I mean, it could, it, be September. Yeah. it could just be as simple as they both enjoyed sociopathic psychotic things. And they sort of had like this, you know symbiotic revelation together oh let's just kill everybody um so let's make a lot of horror movie references you can tell he is a big cinephile oh absolutely that that was a bit of a plot hole too because if randy worked at the movie store he would have known that billy rented all these movies and like had watched all these movies streaming them on his own back then yeah so good point um that's actually a great fantastic point but we're going to move on to our rankings here so we're going to move on to our acting um rankings out of 25 um skeet out of 25 how do you give scream the actors what are you going to give it (laughs) the actors out of 25 um 
kind of tough. I'm gonna give him. <laughs> I'm gonna give him a solid night. Sydney uh, does a good job as a final girl. Uh, Matthew Lillard. You can give him a two. You can give him a thirty out of twenty-five, depending. On <laughs> uh, uh, Jamie Kennedy. He's another one of those guys you love him or hate him. Um, a lot of the other characters you can take or leave, um, but obviously you got Courtney Cox, David Arquette. I think they do a great job. So I'm gonna go. I feel like individually they're spread out all across the spectrum, but I'm gonna go a solid 19. Uh, Preston, what do you think? Uh, 25. For acting, yeah. I mean, I, I gotta agree. It's not, it's not the greatest acting you've ever seen, and I don't think it was necessarily what they were looking for. But um, I would say it's all incredibly serviceable, and, and in a way, like uh, a parody in itself, because I think it's also trying to be kind of an homage to, you know, past acting in these types of films. Um, and yeah, well, I think uh, Bud said earlier, like, kind of gives you that campy, um, campy vibe. Uh, you know, kind of hokey at times. So I'm going to just give it a, a solid 20. All right, Bud, we're moving on to you. Out of 25, the acting for yeah, Scream. I completely agree with what Preston said. You know, at the same while it was like a little bit hokey and slightly campy. It, at the same time, that's kind of what they were going for. And in that sense, they knocked it out of the park. But at the same time, that has its drawbacks. So I think I'm going to go with a 19 too. Joseph, out of 25. What wait? Dash more. <laughs> it's uh, 21. 21? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know because like everyone said, it's it's difficult to judge because I don't know if this is 100% satire filling. You don't know if it's 100% like a slasher film. So I, I feel like everyone did a good job in terms of what they were conveying. I'm actually going to give it higher than anybody else. I'm going to give it a 22. So we're going to move on to characters. Um... Skeet, what do you think in terms of character development, in terms of characters in general, in terms of how it was developed for the whole plot? How did you think the characters were in general out of 25? Um, you know, I, I think they were solid. I mean, you first and foremost, you know, you, you follow the rubric of the attractive teens. You know, these are all relatively just attractive high school kids. And um, you've got the... Uh, the suave brooding type and Billy Loomis, you've got the, you kind of got two cut-ups in Stu and Randy, but Randy's sort of the nerd cut-up. Stu's the all-out, just up for fun, up for anything. Uh, Sydney's the the serious final girl cliche. Tatum is the essentially pointless friend who's just there for emotional support <laughs> until she dies. Um, I forgot Rose McGowan was in this movie. <laughs> like I, 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 Rose McGowan. It kind of shocked me. There's a lot of movies then. And I read something that Rose McGowan, she, you know, she's like a brunette. She dyed her hair because she did not want to be like the second fiddle brunette to, to Nev Campbell. Um, but you know, that was just some random tidbit. But yeah, I think her character is essentially nothing. But I don't know. Give him give him a twenty. Twenty. All right, Preston, what do you think? Out of twenty five characters. Yeah. So this is kind of similar to like the five main five characters in cabin in the woods and that they're like kind of fulfilling these cliches oh yeah uh, absolutely and uh but like that's again like that was kind of the point I, I don't think like the acting was such a big uh important part but uh, of the characters necessarily but like 
I, for for me, I enjoy the characters more than I actually enjoy the people that were acting, you know, like the acting actually going on. So uh, I gave it a 22. Um, also, you know, Ghostface accounts. Well, absolutely. Uh, My but, kind of character. But what was your ranking out of 25 for the characters? Yeah, sure. I guess I, maybe I knocked the uh, the acting slightly. Um, but I do think the care it was very well written and, and, there, and it had good characters and it and it took and played up the whole um, the whole genre. So I think that's where I'll give it to Sean Marks. I give it twenty. Joe, what do you think? I don't know. This was kind of my worst category for the movie, and I'm going to say this because there there were a couple creepy handsy moments with Henry <laughs> Wink with Nev- <laughs> that I was like, damn, like <laughs> this is kind of weird. Like <laughs> he's like. Let me fondle you a little bit. <laughs> well, he grabbed her chin. Like, it, yeah. like <laughs> Joe, Joe, are you saying when you're just, you know, having a, a, a general conversation, you just don't uh, softly grade someone's chin? <laughs> not, not just somebody's, a student's. When you're like a That's 50-year-old true, yeah. man, it's like a 16-year-old. So. I feel like we would be remiss. Not we might have been talking about this before the show. We would be remiss not to mention his nod to Wes Craven as the janitor, calling him Fred, while wearing the clearly Freddy Krueger sweater. Um, yeah. yeah, Henry Winkler reference. Uh, we had talked about that earlier, but obviously that nod is deserves a little recognition. Did not, did not know that was Wes Craven. I didn't either. I think Preston told me that before but the show. I, but I had it written down that, that, that like, I was like, oh, the jan- that was a nice Easter egg. The janitor was wearing Freddy Krueger costume. Yeah. Now, I read that on Wikipedia. Go ahead, Joe. What do you think? Okay, so, you know, the characters are kind of hokey, and you can see how it spawned all these uh, satire characters, you know, like Officer Doofus or, you know, <laughs> Doofy. Nah, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock it a little bit. I'm giving it 18. Eighteen, yeah, man. I, I, I'm actually. This is where I'm going to knock it the most because I love the plot. And I, I don't think the acting's bad, but I really, really thought like the character development in this movie was just nothing. But maybe that's just how it works in slasher movies or whatever. But I'm going to give it a fifteen. Uh, plot. Ah, damn. Plot. We're going to move on to Skeet. What do you think, Skeet? Plot wise, did you think this movie really progressed well? Do you think it had a great story? Do you think it could have been better? Out of 25, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, take away the, the meta vibe, take the commentary that, that it set, you know, the intent that it set out to do. It's a good slasher. It's a whodunit. You get people picked off one by one. It, you know, it by design, it follows the rubric of a good slasher movie and keeps you guessing until the end. Plot wise, I'll go 23. All right. <laughs> Let's go, Preston. Just I can't believe the some of those character scores. I mean, just the the creation of Ghostface that's huge. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a secret. I love this movie, and uh, it combines black comedy. It's got the whodunit. It's a slasher film, a little mystery, and um, pays homage, tribute, whatever, to so many classic horror films that I, I also like. So like, I just think. Uh, it's just fun. It's I look at back at it now. It doesn't really scare me anymore. It's just kind of entertaining, and it's a, a fun little ride. Um, so I'm giving it a 23. Butch, what are you going with? Uh, I'll give it a 20. Like I said, it, it's it's totally serviceable, and it's certainly memorable. Um, and, and as far as I think horror movies, it's got one of the better stories. But again, you know, 
I think the who done it aspect could have been fleshed out a little bit more, give you uh, a little more background. Uh, but again, once again, it was, it was very, it was very serviceable. So twenty. All right, let's move on, Joe. Your plot score. I remember being actually very impressed that it was a two killer setup when I first saw this movie back in the nineties. So I'm gonna give it the Jordan seal of approval, twenty three. Oh damn! Um, you know. I like the plot. Like I said, I, I agree with Budge in terms of I think this could have actually been a little bit developed more in terms of backstory, but I did like the two killer setup. I'm going to give it a 22 um, because I, I thought it was, I don't want to say it's original, but I really, really enjoyed in terms of how meta it was. Um, so we're going to move on to music, which I don't know how featured it was in this, but we still have to give it a score out of 25. Skeet, what do you, what do you got for the music out of 25? So the I think that from the get go, I think the soundtrack does a good job of setting the tone. From if I remember correctly, it does it definitely does its job of, of putting in some some early nineties. Uh, uh, by the way, it also incorporates that song before we never mentioned it, but it incorporates that song from the Peaky Blinders. Yeah, red right hand. Is, yeah, the red right hand, which is awesome, by the way. I yeah. did not know that that was in scare, uh, not scary movie, scream. So yeah, yeah. Sorry, it, go ahead. It's also the theme to a to an Australian show with Guy Pearce called Jack Irish. But yeah, it's 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 not good. Dude, That's it, it, it featured Deep that Peaky Blinders song twice. I think two or three times. So I loved it. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm giving away my. Pick a little bit early, go ahead. No, no, no. It, I mean, that's that's obviously the highlight of the soundtrack. I think overall, <laughs> hard nineties, heavy nineties. Um, but the the saving grace for the entire soundtrack is Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Red Right Hand, which I think it plays like at least three times. Just that that intro, yeah, yeah, plays like three different times, and that is the perfect mood setter for any for any. Oh, it's fantastic. On track, because of that song, I'm giving it a 24. Ooh, nice. All right, so we're moving back. Preston, what do you think? Uh, so everything everyone just said, especially, especially the Nick Cave uh, and, the, and the Bad Seeds, Red Right Hand, I, I mean, that to me, like, saved the music, the soundtrack, <laughs> the score, because, I mean, I mean, for me, when I, like, no shit. When I think of this film, and sometimes when I even think of like Halloween and fall approaching, this is how impactful uh, that film was on me. I think of Red Right Hand. I hear it. I hear the bells. I hear just like that brooding melody. And Nick Cave's like very groggy, like just deep, but like also soulful voice. Like it's, it just, it's always stood with me. And I remember putting it on, you know, like earlier and watching it. And just waiting, just waiting, like hmm. waiting for that moment when that when it first happens, because it just it goes with the, the like kind of the small town feel goes with the season. It, it just it's perfect. And uh, I think that kind of saves it. Other than that, like there's just some there's like a shitty don't fear the reaper acoustic. <laughs> like, I didn't mind it that much. It's so bad. <laughs> I thought it was terrible. But and then you get Alice Cooper schools out, which is, you know, that's always great to have. Um, so, you know, the score, it was, it was, it was pulsating at times as, as most horror films do. And it kind of went with what was going on, um, uh, nothing too great, but I'm going to give the whole, uh, music, mainly Nick Cave, a 22. All right, Bugs, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I, I just, for red right hand, it shoots automatically to 21. <laughs> Joseph. 
Yeah, just for the '90s nostalgia's sake of you know this this score, you know it slaps pretty good. I'm gonna give it a 22. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I'm a big Peaky Blinders fan, and when I first like I I hadn't seen Scream maybe in a long time, maybe completely forgot that that song was a part of the soundtrack or whatever. So I love Peaky Blinders. So when I heard that song, just immediately get introduced into it, not just introduced, but replayed over and over again i have to give it a 23 so um those are going to wrap up our rankings for scream the west craven film and that's going to be about, about it we're going to give a special thanks to skeet loomis Look. one of our best friends ever of all time thank you skeet uh, for, for not just a lot of fun um next week we're going to do hubie halloween on netflix but if anyone's got some final final words uh skeet if you want to give like your anything you want to say to the audience at the end before everyone else goes off go for it let's go we still got 11 days left of october squeeze in pack in as many horror movies as you can tis the season (laughs) enjoy it embrace it appreciate y'all having me skeet represents shutter the new app that's available on streaming services such (laughs) a good app if you like horror films i have to sneak them in all right, we're going to sign it out. Bud, you got anything to say before we close out the show? Get your popcorn ready and budging makes me feel good. <laughs> Joseph? Keep budging, gentlemen. Your turn! All right! You better know this Thank you.